Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Bahamas have been hit hard by Hurricane Dorian, and it's making its way to Florida. Nearly 2,000 Canadians could be in its path. Paul Fromm wants to address Hamilton City Council on the topic of free speech. And post-secondary students are very stressed over the cuts to OSAP. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Our top story, of course, is what's going on uh, weather-wise. The Bahamas have been hit by Hurricane Dorian, and it is making its way toward Florida. Nearly 2,000 Canadians, we are told, may be in its path. Jackson Prosco, the uh, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, is actually in Florida right now, and he joins us on The Bill Kelly Show to give us an update. Uh, Good morning, Jackson. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. At the beginning of the weekend, uh, Dorian was a Category 5, and, and it was being billed then as maybe one of the worst storms to ever hit the Florida coast. It's downgraded to a 3 now, Jackson. Is that ease the angst that, that anybody's feeling now? Yeah, it's not so much the downgrade that's easing the angst. It's the path, the fact that it appears that it's going to sort of uh, skirt the coast of both Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas and stay offshore. In other words, they're not expecting any sort of direct uh, landfall, at least not in uh, Florida. Which is a big change, I mean, because they were preparing, I mean, not just inland Florida, but even into the Gulf Coast. They they were not really sure just how much of an impact this was going to have if it hit landfall. Yeah, exactly. It shows you how much the forecast has changed since since this first came out. Uh, I think that the biggest driving factor here is the fact that it has essentially stalled over the Bahamas. It's just been hammering them for now 48 hours, uh, and for almost 24 hours had zero motion. It had a forward speed of zero uh, it is now only moving out at one mile per hour, so one and a half kilometers per hour that is starting to move north. It will pick up speed over the next few days, but it's also going to lose strength. Now, it's going over water, though. Does that not usually kind of resurge this thing? And, and Is there a possibility it could actually gain strength in, instead of losing strength as it moves up the coast? Well, the thing is, the further north it moves, the cooler the water starts yeah. to get. But you're right, there is a lot of fuel there. I mean, the, the water here, the ocean water in Daytona Beach is like a bath. It is uh, warm and it's very comfortable. So uh, there is a chance that the hurricane you know, may, may hold on to some strength, uh, but there aren't any, any massive predictions of it gaining too much strength. What about the evacuation orders, Jackson? Uh, there are some people, of course, that are just saying this is life. I mean, we live in Florida. We're used to hurricanes. Uh, but it seems as if Dorian is, is, is separate and apart from that. That's what we seem to be hearing from the uh, the experts on this right now. Are people heeding the warnings to, to get away from the, the coast as much as they can? Yeah, there's about 3 million people under mandatory evacuation order uh, in the four states here. But you're right, a lot of people are staying put. Uh, there's a bit of hurricane fatigue that's setting in, I think, because we've been talking about this storm now for a full week, which means people have had a week to prepare, a week to worry, a week to watch the forecast change. And the sort of consensus I'm getting from people is they live in a, a well-built home and they're not too close to the water. Their feeling is that uh, they're going to ride it out because the storm is not set to make landfall. Now, they, they, they fully admit that if, if the eye was set to come over top of them, they'd be packing up and heading out. But most people seem content to stay put. Uh, How is this having an impact on commerce there? I understand the, uh, the airport in Lauderdale, at least the, the story we heard earlier this morning, uh, was they're shutting down as of noon today. Yeah, and Orlando is shut down as well. Uh, Daytona Beach Airport is shut down as well. About 2,000 flights canceled today. Uh, a devastating impact on the tourism industry ahead of the busy Labor Day weekend because most people canceled their reservations. And so uh, the hotel we were at was 100% booked, and only 15% of the guests actually checked in at the end of the day. And most of them had to leave early before the mandatory evacuations kicked into effect. Are you seeing a migration? Are there a lot of people that are leaving town? 
you know, it's it's really hard to tell because it was so quiet to begin with because you didn't have the typical crowds here. So, obviously, I, I guess it's going to depend a little bit on just how strong the storm is. Uh, now, they're tracking this, as you mentioned, Jackson. Can it, it, It's very difficult, obviously, because you're not quite sure what's going to happen. I don't think they anticipated that it was going to stall over the Bahamas as much as it did. Uh, but it seems to, as you mentioned, start to moving again. Uh, are they pretty sure of the track right now? I mean, they're sure that uh, the, the landfall seems out of the cards at this point. The cone of uncertainty or the cone of certainty has sort of moved completely off the coast. And it's really just now uh, a bit of South Carolina and North Carolina that's at the most direct risk at this point. And then uh, the, the impacts for Atlantic Canada further out may be uh, coming into play as well. But that's too far into the future to know at this point. Uh, but I think the bottom line is, a lot of certainty that it's not going to make direct landfall on the Florida coast, although uh, there are certainly concerns that people will see some strong winds, some storm surge here, a lot of rain over the next 24 hours, and so there's still a need to be cautious and make preparations. Jackson, what are they saying about the impact it's going to have? And you, you talked about the storm surge, and that's, as uh, we know from past hurricanes, that's actually where the most damage can be done and often where the most loss of life occurs is because of the storm surge itself. Uh, the fact that it's not necessarily going to make landfall, uh, is that going to lessen that storm surge and lessen the impact that it might have? You know, they're still talking of a storm surge of about two meters, so that's uh, nothing to scoff at. Yeah. Uh, but really, the evacuations are limited to the areas right along the coast. Those are, those are the areas of most concern. Um, now, when you say it's going to go up the coast, but not touching the coast, uh, I mean, on Friday we were uh, getting stories about not just the Florida coast, but even the Georgia coast, and, and straight up as far as, uh, as you mentioned, the Carolinas were being put on high alert right now. So it sounds as if Georgia may uh, dodge a bullet here, too. Yeah, now that being said, you know, those evacuation plans are still coming into effect. They've reversed the flow on the interstates, all that kind of stuff. They're just being cautious at this point. It's easier to move a few people out of the way and have it played safe than try and mount a disaster response if the forecast changes. So uh, that's sort of where we're at right now. Everything's just being done uh, as a precaution. Is, now, because it is so slow moving, is there a concern here that it may just kind of set down as it did in the Bahamas, uh, and, in which case obviously the rain and the wind would be relentless? No, I think, uh, you know, meteorologists have a pretty good sense of how this is going to go and that as it leaves the Bahamas, it's going to be picked up by some of the steering currents and shuffle along quite quickly. But we're still talking about impacts into Thursday and Friday uh, for parts of the Carolinas. So it's, it's taking its time getting out of here. How is this impacting the, the residents? We talked, as you mentioned, some of them are going to stick it out and try to stay there. Uh, obviously, there's a big rush on things. I mean, you mentioned they've got a week now they've, since they were warned that this was probably going to happen. And, and we've seen the shots on, on your coverage from, uh, from Florida over the last couple of days on Global National of uh, you know, the boarding up of the windows, etc. But also, those that are going to stick it out have to get supplies. Uh, is there enough for everybody? I mean, things like water and a number of different other things that they have to stock up on. Well, I think the, the big thing here is that because there was so much time to prepare, that run on supplies happened a few days ago. Uh, when we landed on Friday, the rush was still on, lineups at the gas stations, all of that. But over the weekend, people have made their plans. They've got their supplies. And so we've had no trouble finding gas or supplies or water or anything like that. It really, it really has calmed down. What about price gouging? That's always a problem when you have something like this, a calamity that is imminent or one that has already occurred. Uh, you know, we saw that with a great blackout here a number of years ago, right across uh, the eastern part of the, North America, uh, where all of a sudden some people who, who would just want to try to get the best of somebody's, you know, instead of the words, instead of gasoline being a dollar fifty a gallon, all of a sudden it's four fifty a gallon. Have we seen any of that? 
No, I haven't seen any of that, and it's because it's such a huge area that's impacted. I think uh, anybody would be pretty hard-pressed to get away with that, but also uh, state-level governments here know to keep an eye out for that sort of thing and, and report that sort of thing. I know that they passed a law, and I guess this was after some of the other damage from previous hurricanes, that uh, I guess you can't do, it's illegal, obviously, not as only is it unethical, but illegal, uh, that you have to sell a good or a commodity at the average price. Uh, you can't just jack it up all of a sudden arbitrarily. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, I think, uh, you know, Florida is so suburban and it's a driving state that uh, you would notice the one gas station that is charging twice as much for fuel uh, as the other station. Is there a sense with the, the, the latest forecast, Jackson, that, uh, that the, the pressure is off now? Obviously, it's a hurricane and people understand that there's still going to be some, some effects here. But are they, are they thinking, well, it could have been a lot worse than it probably is going to be? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody will rest fully easy until it's done and over with and move past them, but there's certainly a sense that this is not going to uh, live up to sort of the worst expectations, and I think people are quite grateful for that. What about the, you mentioned the tourist industry, obviously that's pretty much come to a standstill because of the storm watch that's gone on over the last two or three days, uh, but it is built for tourism, uh, you know, the theme parks, things of that nature. Is, is there any concern about the impact that it might have there? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, most of the hotels uh, lost most of their business on the Labor Day weekend. All the businesses on the boardwalk, they all had to board up and shut down as well. Don't have any numbers from the theme parks, but you have to think that a lot of people just changed their Florida plans outright and steered clear. And, of course, having Orlando's airport closed uh, is having a major impact as well. We mentioned about the Canadians. The numbers we're hearing are about 2,000 Canadians could be actually be uh, down there at the time. I suppose some of those are probably uh, people that just vacation down there. Others uh, may be taking up residence. Uh, but they may or may not have a place to go in a situation like that. Where are people going? Where are they being held uh, overnight uh, in some sort of a shelter? Uh, what, what are they using to try to, uh, I guess, house the evacuees? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, shelters that are purpose-built. Uh, there are community centers, there are schools uh, that are available as shelters. But honestly, any solid concrete hotel will be just fine as well. And so the only hotels that have ordered guests to leave are the ones in the evacuation zone right on the beach. You can drive 10 or 15 minutes inland and find a hotel to stay at. So uh, that doesn't seem to be a problem. I, I know, again, from the reporting that we've seen on Global National that I guess some high schools are being used, gymnasiums, et cetera, like that, for those that are going to be hard-pressed. But it seems as if they've had enough time to prepare for this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the saving grace here. A week to prepare for this, a week to prepare for every possible scenario. And whether it's a hit or a miss, Florida is ready. And uh, uh, while there is a bit of fatigue setting in, I think people are grateful for the chance to have that time to prepare and stock up and not be uh, in a mad rush. Do you get that sense when you were talking to to the folks on the street, that they, they, those conversations that you've had uh, with the residents there? I, you mentioned a couple of times now about hurricane fatigue. It's been a pretty rough season for them. But is there sort of an attitude of, well, here we go again? Yeah, I think if you live in Florida, you're used to this sort of thing, you prepare for this sort of thing. Most people have generators in their homes. They have their homes wired to power certain things off of the generator. It's uh, it's a well-rehearsed routine that comes with uh, living in this part of the world. So this is, this is going to roll now, and there doesn't seem to be much of an opportunity for this thing to hit landfall now. Uh, but obviously, uh, the, I guess the concern right now is going to be the Carolinas. Does, does the, the attention shift up to the Carolinas now for the impact it might have? Yeah, I mean, it's, the whole coast is uh, continuing to watch this, and it really depends on where the, the path firms up. Uh, the most likely place for a glancing landfall, if there is one, is sort of uh, the North Carolina-South Carolina border. Uh, Wilmington, North Carolina seems to be the spot right now. That's five days out. So much can change. 
Any indication as to how far up the coast this will go? It's, it's highly unusual for a hurricane, uh, even a Category 3, to, to make it much past the Carolinas in situations. It has happened the odd time, of course. We can think of Sandy and the impact that had on, on New York City and so many other places. But are they expecting this thing to go back out to sea and have little impact after it hits the Carolinas? You know, it may make a path for Atlantic Canada, but I'm not a meteorologist, so not my place to say, uh, and that's a long ways out on the forecast, but it's certainly something that is uh, worth watching. But, you know, the strength, what that looks like, what that brings to Atlantic Canada, lots can still change. Jackson, stay safe. Uh, thanks so much for the time today, and uh, we'll stay in touch for any updates, and of course, we'll watch for your reporting on Global National tonight. Thanks again. Thank you. Jackson Prosco, of course, uh, from Global News, who was down in the Miami area covering uh, that for Global News. And uh, good news, really, that, I, I mean, it is going to be a hurricane. I mean, it's approaching, and it is going to touch the coast, kiss the coast, I, I heard one meteorologist say. But uh, it's a far cry from what they were hoping uh, or against hope that was not going to happen, and that was that it was going to hit landfall, the eye of the hurricane. At one time, they were predicting it was going to go right over the state of Florida, uh, which could have had devastating effects. And, and there's still, let's not kid ourselves, going to be some damage here. And uh, hopefully there will be no loss of life. But it sounds as if they may have escaped this and dodged the bullet just a little bit. Although, as, as Jackson Prosco told us, I mean, they're, they're used to this. They understand the impacts and you would like to think that people are taking the proper precautions. But uh, the winds are not going to be as severe. Uh, the storm surge still two meters, which is significant, so that is going to have an impact, and you are going to see some property damage, to be sure. But it sounds as if they seem to have things under control. And that goes not just for Florida, but as we mentioned, for Georgia as well, which was also on high alert because they just didn't know what kind of a track this uh, hurricane, this storm, was going to take. But it seems, uh, just to get you up to date on the latest, it seems now as if it's just going to kind of move up the coast and not actually make landfall. Uh, may not actually make landfall at all, but if it does, now they're predicting it might not be until it gets up the coast towards the Carolinas, Wilmington, South Carolina. So we'll keep an eye on that and, of course, bring you updates as to uh, how this is progressing and how people are dealing with it. But uh, it's, it's kind of tough, but you, you find it interesting, though, uh, when you watch Jackson's reporting and some of the other stuff we've seen from Florida over the last couple of days, uh, most of the residents, as a kind of matter of fact, oh, yeah, here we go again. Been there, done that. We understand that. And that, that's not to say that they're just shoving it aside and saying this is no big deal, because certainly it is. But they're used to this. They understand the coverage, and uh, they've had more than enough time now to get uh, their ducks in a row when it comes to emergency services and uh, places for shelter and things of that nature. So it may not be as severe as before, and that's always a good news story. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. City Council is uh, mulling over a number of things today at uh, their meeting at uh, City Hall, at the uh, General Issues Committee meeting. Uh, among them is a request to speak before the committee, to address the committee, by uh, Paul Frum, who has been described as a white nationalist, as a, a far-right advocate, a uh, number of other adjectives, I guess, have been used with Mr. Frum. Uh, he's wanting to address City Council in regards to free speech. Uh, this has to do, of course, with uh, some of the measures that uh, City Council acted upon uh, in the not-too-distant past uh, to do with uh, hate prevention policies and uh, limiting what he thinks, anyway, is limiting free speech. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, good friend Bernie Farber, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, Bernie, uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good to have you again on the program. Always great to be on, Bill. You surprised by this request? Oh, no, no, not not at all. Uh, Mr. Fromm is uh, ubiquitous. He's been known to do this. He uh, he wanted to actually speak a few years ago on Parliament Hill. He was banned from speaking on, on Parliament Hill. 
Uh, he tried to rent a room, I believe, in a public library, uh, and he was forbidden from doing that, uh, only because the contract was null and void as a result of some shenanigans that happened. So, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't surprise me, but it, it's kind of a little bit more complex than a, you know, a simple yes or no, he should or he shouldn't. And it's, um, you know, it's something that people really have to think about. Well, let's walk through that if we could, Bernie, and maybe you can enlighten our listeners about this. Because, I, I mean, I've heard an, a, a lot of feedback on this since uh, this came to light a couple of days ago. Uh, and as you say, some people are just saying, just absolutely say no. You just, you know, you don't want that kind of person there. You don't want to give them a platform. And I can understand their feelings, certainly. But there are others that say, look, if you believe in free speech, then you've got to be able to offer a forum and an opportunity to people who you may not even like to uh, what they're saying or agree with yeah. what they're saying. Uh, and I think council, some counselors that I've talked to anyway feel as if they're between a rock and a hard place they here. <laughs> well, they are between a rock and a hard place. Um, and <clears throat> and I, I hate to say that the answer to the question is it depends. And so, the, you know, what does it depend on? Well, it depends on whether or not there is an, an open forum on at city council meetings, if this is a regular thing or if they're doing something special because Paul Fromm has asked for it. So if they're doing something special, there is no need for council to do anything special. Um, very often you'll find, and I've, I've participated in, in uh, municipal meetings, where there is a certain uh, issue that has come before council, you know, some municipal issue, and um, people make deputations. And, uh, you know, I would say... Uh, you know, it's really difficult, um, and I would say dangerous to uh, disallow anyone from making a deputation to council unless he or she crosses the legal line uh, in a free and democratic society. They are they are permitted to speak. Uh, even neo Nazis are permitted to speak. I, su- I suppose that's the beauty of our of our system. On the other hand, if it if it's a neo Nazi or a white supremacist saying, "I just want five minutes to address council." This is then strictly up to council. There's, there's not an agenda. Uh, the person just wants to speak. And council has every right to say, no, thank you. We're pretty comfortable with our position on free speech or whatever. This is, this is not up for debate at this particular council meeting. So I'm, I'm, I'm unclear as to whether or not council is debating free speech and is, is asking for deputations or if Mr. Fromm has just said all of, you know, out of the blue, I want to speak on free speech. Well, it, and that's why I'm wondering ex- exactly how council is going to approach this as well. Uh, the information I've got at this stage, Bernie, says that uh, apparently Fromm wants to address uh, some of the policies that city council acted upon, and this was at the request and, and at the uh, urging of city staff, uh, bec- to deal with some of the things that had gone on here. I mean, you and, you know what happened, of course, at Pride Week and, and the parade and the, uh, the assault that occurred at Gage Park. Uh, and subsequently, of course, there have been these demonstrations in front of City Hall, almost on a weekly basis now on Saturdays, uh, with Yellow Vesters, uh, with uh, Fromm and, and some of his supporters, and of course um, uh, other members who are saying and hate. So they've talked about where you can do it, how long you can do it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's a number of different things they go. Yeah. Now, given yeah. given the stuff that we've had to put up with in this community, uh, and and so the incidents of hate and, and uh, intolerance that have gone on here. I guess one of the uh, sub-questions to this, does council really have the right to say, okay, uh, we're going to set some rules for this? Um, now, Prom obviously says no. Well, well actually, Bill, <clears throat> the municipal council, of course, has the right to set the rules. And if there, if there are people within the community who believe that the rules are a violation of law or if they are a violation of the Constitution, then they have the right to bring an action forward. Uh, I don't think anybody has the right to take a look at council policy 
and then write counsel and say, I want to come and address you. I think that there has to be a process in place. I don't know of any city council that allows anybody at any time to come and address council with their points of view. That's why we elect city councillors to represent rides and, war- and, and, and wards in, in order to bring the position of their members of their ward forward. We, we don't have a general kind of democratic, democratic council where, where anything goes. And so I'd, I'd say again, if in fact council has put together rules, which apparently they have, to, uh, to find a scope for how to, how to address very complex issues in the public square, and then if, they're, if they've opened council for deputations, and certainly, sadly, yes, you give, you give voice to even the most decrepit of our members of our society to speak. That's the way it is. And, and, and if they cross the debate lines, the mayor or, or, or whoever's chairing the meeting gets to say so. But I don't think anybody, especially neo-Nazis, that's my view, but I don't think anybody just has the right to say, I don't like, you know, a Proposition A, or I don't like what, you know, Councillor B is saying, and I would like to come and, and address Council. If that was the case, no Council business would ever get done. And it's just not the way it's done. So uh, if, in fact, Council has opened this this uh, situation for discussion and deputation, then, yes, Paul Fromm gets in line with everybody else. If he's just asking for special status, no, he doesn't deserve it, and he shouldn't get it. Well, and again, this is only my perspective because I didn't attend those meetings, but I mean, from the reporting that I've seen of this, uh, they've had a full and frank discussion about this stuff anyway, uh, long before uh, Mr. Frum made his request to city council, and this seems to be somewhat after the fact now because uh, they've already discussed it, they've debated it, uh, they've actually uh, massaged some of the requests uh, and, and some of the new rules a, a little bit, and uh, as far as I can see from councils that, I, that I've talked to, Bernie, they figured this is a, this issue is over and done with. I mean, we've we've settled on this. Now we just need so, to enforce this. So, in other words, uh, the process has already occurred. Um, Mr. Fromm wants to take a spotlight and you know um, um, more more than obviously go into his you know a, a viewpoint. Much of it uh, is racist and bigoted and uh, and uh, and everything else. We've heard it all before. Everybody knows who he is. Um, and uh, I don't think Mr. Fromm has any special rights to address council than you or me or, or, any, or anybody else. So, it, you know, if, if, as you say, and I, I'm sure that's exactly what happened because I know how councils operate. They have debated this five ways till Tuesday. Mr. Fromm, who I understand is a resident of the Hamilton area, mm-hmm. had every opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to make his voice uh, known. He chose not to. He chose to ask for special time. Uh, for him, and I think council has every right to say goodbye, good luck, but you're not getting uh, any special treatment, no more than anybody else. There has, uh, as you and I have talked about, uh, been a, a, a real pushback. Uh, the anti-hate network and, and the anti-hate protesters uh, that, uh, and I actually rallies the maybe the better way to use, describe what's gone on at City Hall. Uh, the numbers of those who are trying to show that Hamilton is not the most, uh, you know, the the, the 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 home, as some people say, of, of hate crimes here. Uh, that are trying to send a positive message, uh, seem to be winning the day. And I'm just wondering if this is kind of a last gasp attempt to try to get back on the spotlight and, and, and be given a platform to, to give a counter-argument. Well, if I can say this, there are always last gasp attempts by the far right and the racist right to try and get their message across. They will try whatever kind of gimmicks will, will uh, shine the spotlight on them um, this is one of them for it clearly to me. Uh, you know, when, when I, when I was first called by your producer to, to, to discuss this with you, I of course did some research 
And I, I honestly thought that what, what what we were looking at were a group of deputations to City Hall, to you know, to a City Hall meeting, in which Mr. Fromm was was being denied access. That would have been a problem. That's not the case at all. It appears as though Mr. Fromm wants special attention. He wants a special platform, and it doesn't matter that he is a you know a far right agitator, or if he was from the far left, or if he was from the extreme middle. That's not the process. And there is no way that city council should allow him, a far-right racist agitator, to grab the spotlight when that's simply not the process. It's not how we do things in Hamilton. And they have every right to just shut it down and move on. And I, and I would urge them very much to do so. They've spent the entire summer, and rightly so, debating what is the best way to use the public square. And that, by the way, is where people get to protest legally, nonviolently, civilly, passionately. They don't get you know, rights that all others don't have, and certainly not Mr. Fromm. Bernie, again, back to process, if I could, for just a minute. Uh, if counsel turns this down, I mean, what's the worst-case scenario? Fromm appeals that to, what, a human rights tribunal? I, I'm not even sure he can appeal it. I mean, on, on what basis could he appeal it? There, There is a civil process. It's, it's a constitutional process used by city councils across Canada, uh, they, they have a, a room and a time for deputations, and they call out for deputations. I, I, as I said, I don't know of any city council, any provincial government, any federal government that allows uh, citizens to come into their council chambers at any time to make a statement. Uh, there are deputations. That's what, that's what that process is for. He can complain until he's blue in the face. I don't think it's going to get him anywhere. Well, we'll see how this goes later on today. Listen, while I've got sure. you, I wanted to get a quick comment to you about uh, another incident that occurred this past weekend uh, with uh, actually Brampton MPP uh, Guratan Singh, who, yep. by the way, is the brother of uh, Jagmeet Singh, the uh, federal NDP leader. We've, we've had uh, Guratan on the show a number of times in the last little while. Uh, anyway, uh, standing up to a heckler who was spewing Islamophobic uh, remarks at a, at a gathering, and uh, it's, it's nice to see the good guys pushing back. Well, not, not only is it nice, I mean, I, I was uh, proud of, of Mr. Singh for standing up against racism. And he was standing up against, you know, one of the most, uh, um, how should I put this, vocal uh, Islamophobes uh, here in this country, Stephen Garvey, the head of the National Alliance, uh, National Citizens Alliance. Uh, not, by the way, interestingly enough, Mr. Garvey is facing, uh, you know, criminal indictment charges for election fraud that he's going to have to uh, work through in the next short while. But, uh, you know, Mr. Garvey makes himself quite available to yell and scream about Sharia law and about Canadian Muslims. It's pretty disgusting stuff. I don't know if he thought Mr. Singh was a Muslim, um, which was absurd, absurd, of course, because he is a Sikh. Um, that all aside, uh, good on, on Mr. Singh for standing up. This is, by the way, a, 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 a lesson on how to deal with racism in your face. Instead of turning around and walking away, you stand up to it. You stand up to it with grace, with civility. And, and what did he say? He said, that's racist and I won't stand for it. And that's it. And just you keep on repeating that. And you saw, if anybody saw the clip, Mr. Garvey was left with nothing more than to bluster and bust and spit and spill and then turn around and you know, be, 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 be let out. And he was the one that looked silly in the end. So... You know, good for people for standing up. That's the way that we, we do it here in Canada. 
Well, and, and again, as you say, for those that saw the clip, of Mr. Singh handled it with handled the whole thing out that with grace and dignity. He didn't get down into the into the gutter with him. Didn't start into a yelling and screaming match. And uh, it was it was very nice to see in the reaction to this as well. And I, I I'm hoping that it sets a template for others because we, uh, for one reason or another, we've talked about some of the the root causes of this, Bernie. Uh, this seems to be more rampant than it has been in well, past years. Bill, if I could leave you with, and your listeners with one really nice thought. Uh, I, I was away with my wife for the uh, Labor Day weekend. We were up in the Halliburton area, so not terribly far from Hamilton. You know, we're all kind yeah. of in the same part of Ontario. Um, and we were we were staying at a small little resort out, uh, out in Halliburton. It's a beautiful area of the province. And uh, late, l- last night there was a bonfire. And sitting around that bonfire was Canada. There were people from all walks of life, all ethnicities, all religions. There maybe were 30 or 40 of us. We were talking, we were joking, we were singing camp songs. Nobody said anything about anything other than how nice it was to spend a Labor Day weekend together here in front of a Canadian bonfire. And, and, and the picture that I, that, I, that I took and I put on Facebook, this is Canada. And as I said, they came from places like Stony Creek and Ajax and Brampton and Burlington and Thornhill and Toronto. And it was one of the nicest feelings I've had in a very long time, especially given the kind of work that I do. So I think, honestly, that's the real Canada. What we're hearing, you know, we're in the muck, and sometimes we have to sort of lift our heads up out of the muck and say, you know what, the real Canada is right here in front of this bonfire. It's got to be reassuring and refreshing for you, though, Bernie, as you mentioned, because of the work you've been doing for years now. Uh, with the, uh, the the Paul Frums, the Earth Zundels, and, and so many others that uh, that you've had to talk with and deal with and uh, go through legal wranglings to actually get a, a breath of fresh air, really, and, and see and see the real Canada. A- absolutely. I almost feel sometimes like I'm suffering from PTSD. And to get away for a weekend and really see that nobody mentioned anybody's face, nobody mentioned anybody's color. You know, yeah, we talk politics, which is kind of interesting, but it doesn't matter. It all, all of our discussions centered around Canadian issues and had nothing to do with hate or bigotry. It's just who we were as people living in this wonderful country. Don't you think we need to remind ourselves about that every now and then? That, oh, uh, that, that these confrontations we see, whether it's at Hamilton City Hall or Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto, uh, that's not the face of Canada? It's not at all. And as a matter of fact, the problem is, and I don't blame anybody, these things have to be covered, but it does get exaggerated as a result of the coverage. It feels stronger than it really is but if you take a look at least here in toronto they had a you know they had a march from the far right uh, last saturday and eight people showed up and 80 counter demonstrators showed up i mean really those are probably the real numbers if you think about it we don't live in a perfect country not everybody's going to love everyone else but at the same time i think we've done pretty well we have work to do but boy that this past weekend really just relit my spirits, I have to tell you. Well, and especially when you experience something like that, and I think maybe not the same situation, but I think many of us experience very similar situations. Uh, and it kind of reminds us that, that this is worth fighting for, that this is this is what we want. This is what we want for our families, for our kids. And, and especially when you take a look at what's happening south of the border, um, and, and, and there's just a, that line, you know, that parallel uh, that that borderline that divides us from our, our cousins in America and here in Canada. And, yeah, we have our downtimes, but my, oh, my, you know, when I think of the gun laws down there and, you know, parents today in fear of sending children to school, 
I mean, that's how, how does one live with it like that? I, I, I just don't understand it. The tense, you know, being tense and anxious all the time over racial issues, over violent issues. Here, as I said, we've got our issues and we've got our problems, but I think we've done pretty well. If I'm not mistaken, the, the Life Index that was just published recently makes Canada the fourth best place in the world to live in. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I just heard somebody complaining on television, uh, an American, about this the other day. As Of course, we're back into the first day of school today. Uh, and uh, they start in August in, in some of the southern states especially. Yes. Uh, so they've been back for about a month now. And he was complaining about the fact that his grade four son has already gone through three live gun drills in their classroom. In other words, what to do in case there's a live shooter in the school once again. And, and you know, that's, that's the new normal, sadly, for some new, schools. That is the new normal. And that, what, what impact does that have on children? I mean, I remember, Bill, and you probably do as well. I don't know if you're as old as I am, but in the 60s, now, we had to do the duck and cover, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in fear of the potential for an atomic war. And I still remember that intensely. And maybe we did it two or three times over, you know, in, in, when I was in elementary school. Can you imagine having to go through a gun drill like this literally once a week uh, with, with the fear that this can happen? And we know it can happen at any time at any school in the United States. Now, we've had our own bouts of violence here as well, but uh, the number of school shootings, it's mind-boggling. It's just mind-boggling. And that, you know, tempered with, not tempered with, but uh, added to that is the racial element and the anti-Semitic element and the Islamophobic element that mixes into that hatred. It's a volatile brew of the worst kind. Bernie, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for the input into this. We'll uh, certainly keep an eye on how City Council handles this today. Thank you. I look forward to speaking to you again, Bill, as always. Thank you again. Bernie Farber, Chair of the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's the start of the school year for uh, many students, of course, but uh, it's going to have different impacts on different levels of education, of course, whether it's elementary, uh, secondary, or post-secondary education. And to that end, uh, one of the th stories that we talked about when uh, the Ford government enacted some of these changes to the education system uh, had to do with tuition. And uh, now the province uh, wants to cut grants, uh, essentially cut grants anyway, it seems that way. Uh, and post-secondary students now are finding themselves, first of all, with a lot less money, which is not what the government said was going to happen, and higher debt. And it's causing an awful lot of problems, and they're going to be long-standing problems. Joining us to talk about this is Kayla Weiler, who is the Ontario representative for the Canadian Federation of Students. Uh, Kayla, welcome back. Good to have you on the show again. Thank you. I'm glad to call in again. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation last time, but I'm excited to talk about um, the next semester right today. <laughs> well, exactly, because, I mean, when you and I talked before, we were saying, well, this is how it's probably going to roll out. Uh, and now, of course, uh, the, those, those post-secondary students are starting to see that happening. Uh, and, and the things that you and I talked about a few months ago are starting to actually become a reality. Uh, namely, that uh, this is a, a system that's in place right now that is not very helpful to students. Uh, and, and student debt is, is going, in my mind, the students I've talked to anyway, Kayla, this is going to be even a bigger problem than it was before. Oh, I totally agree. Like, I just even think of my own student debt, and that was in a time where uh, grants were actually being re awarded to students uh, through the OSAP program, but also uh, loans were uh, or pr were actually provided. Uh, but in the past couple of weeks, I've been on campuses and talking to students, and there are many students who say that they received uh, $800 in loans, $500 in loans, or no money at all from OSAP. 
which is detrimental considering that tuition, even with a 10% reduction in tuition fees, uh, is still in the seven to $8,000 uh, a year. So students are going back to school this fall with no assistance from the Ontario Student Assistance Program. Uh, so they're going to be able, they're wanting to, or they're going to have to take on private loans and, and private debt um, that has high interest rates as well. So this is just overall bad for students uh, going into the fall and fall semester, but also their upcoming school year. Yeah, you know the irony of this whole thing is, uh, on one side of the mouth, the, the government's complaining about the math scores, but on, you look at some of the numbers that are starting to get crunched now because of the circumstance that you and, and other students are in, they don't do very good math either. Uh, they seem to think that a 10% reduction in, in the tuition fees itself uh, is certainly going to offset any har- student hardship and, and financial hardship that you guys are going under, but it, it's not even close. Oh, not even close. Like, so I even just think of back to my own tuition. Um, it was like uh, $800 in the last year, in the last time I was a full-time student. Um, and so a 10% reduction there is $800. Uh, but the money that I was receiving from OSAP was close to $10,000. Uh, because we know that students are not just paying tuition, but they're also paying for rental costs housing, uh, food, uh, and textbooks, uh, among other costs that come along being a student. Uh, So it's clearly that that the Ontario government, when they decided to cut the OSAP program, they were not thinking about how students are going to pay for school, but rather how they can um, cut budgets and and put put forward these austerity cuts uh, and not actually support students, but actually kind of hinder students from accessing post-secondary. I saw a story over the weekend. Uh, they were talking about real numbers now, just a hypothetical. Uh, and they referenced one student uh, who was, uh, I guess, getting $14,000 a year from student loans. Uh, this year, it's been reduced to $5,000. Uh, the the expenses don't go away. I mean, I, I understand that the individual that we're just talking about here actually ended up getting a line of credit. But you got to qualify for that. And not all students are going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, um, I actually have like like a, a line of credit myself. Uh, it ended up being twenty thousand uh, dollars because of the high cost of rent of uh, living in a city um, in in Ontario. Um, and like I had to get both of my parents to sign on that line of credit. And I'm very lucky in the fact that I have good relationship with both my parents, um, and they were really supportive of me going to school. But not everybody has that. Not everybody has like good credit to be able to get a line of credit. Um, but also that's just sadly more debt upon students who just want to study what they're passionate about so they can get a good job, so they can enter the workforce and put back towards the economy. Um, and students that, like have great ideas and they want to be able to go to school, but um, these cuts to OSAP, but also the high cost of tuition, is keeping students from studying what they're passionate about. What about low-income families? I mean, how do they, how do they handle this? Um, so I myself am from a very low-income family, um, and it took like years of planning uh, for me to even attend uh, university in the first place. I got a job the second I could could physically work uh, in Ontario and worked uh, day and night, uh, weekends, every day after school, uh, so I could save up enough money for, for school. And in that those like six years that I worked uh, for minimum wage uh, in high school um, and, and in the summers between school, I was only enough able to save up enough money to uh, to pay for half of my semester's tuition. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a lot of like tricky planning. It's a lot of taking out private loans as well as like hoping that OSAP will provide money. Um, so it, it's a really tricky balance. I often describe the, like, with my mom that it's like a, the world's worst 
Jenga game. If one uh, piece gets pulled out of the puzzle, then it all falls. And I, I think back to my own experience of like sitting around my kitchen table, uh, tr- like w- going through numbers of estimating how much money we would receive from OSAP, but also how much money I could make in the summer. And it was the most stressful part of uh, like the end of the summertime and particularly the Labor Day weekend, um, knowing that going back to school, I would have to pinch some pennies and, and really try to save as much money as I could because School is so expensive, uh, and these recent cuts that, o- that Doug Ford has made to OSAP, a $670 million cut from OSAP, families will be sitting around that kitchen table uh, worrying about their financial future and if they can actually attend college or university. Well, I've talked to a couple of families now over the summer months anyway, Kayla, that have say- basically said, uh, uh, one, well, both cases they were daughters actually, uh, going to have to take a year off uh, and, and kind of get their heads together around this because they just can't afford the, the tuition. Uh, they don't qualify for the, the line of credit that, or even to get a bank loan uh, that the minister is, is uh, suggesting that they do as an alternative right now. So there's there are two students, and I'm sure that's not, that there's probably a lot more just like them. They basically have to put their education on hold right now for financial reasons, and that's not supposed to happen in Ontario. Oh no! Like uh, definitely not. There are um, like 42 public uh, colleges and universities in Ontario. Uh, yet, like the they're like harder to access more than ever. Um, and like education is a right, and it's it's like uh, students should be able to go to school when they want to go to school, and not when they can afford it. And it's really shameful uh, to hear that students are having to drop out of school because uh, when you're in uh, your second or third year, you're on a roll. You're you're discovering new things. You're actually enjoying your classes. You're getting to know your professors or your instructors um, and you know your friends will probably graduate at a different time than yourself and and that's just it, it's really hard for me to think of that and because uh, it, it breaks my heart to know that there's students out there who want to study what they're passionate about who um, but we're like blocked access we're literally being locked out of uh, uh, out of our education and Doug Ford is not using our education system to uh, build up new scholars and build up new people and let people study what they're passionate about he's thinking about the biz- big business investment that uh, will invest money into our institutions because he's going to try to privatize them. This is just the start of a, of a long um, list of cuts that are probably going to be coming when it comes to public education. Uh, and education, it should be for, for all people, regardless of your pocketbook, instead of this for select few of who can afford to pay uh, pay for education. So uh, I'm, I'm seeing a really sad uh, thing coming along with education, but uh, there's a lot of hope still. There's a lot of really cool students like doing really great work on their campuses and fighting back against these well, and with some justification, too, because they understand the impact. And, and, and again, I, I get governments are always concerned about bottom line, but there seems to be an obsession right now with just save, 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 uh, because part of their, their, their mantra, of course, as they were seeking election here in this province, was that, well, we're spiraling out of control. The, you know, the financial situation is dire. Uh, and they just seem to be looking at this and saying, okay, we're going to save money wherever we can. Uh, and they've looked at education and they've looked at health care, which are two things that uh, most uh, Ontarians say are the top two priorities for them. That's where they want to see their tax dollars spent. And and while they can probably brag about the money that they're not going to spend this year because of these cutbacks, uh, they don't seem to consider the quality of health care or the quality of education that's going to result because of these cuts. 
Oh, 100%. Yeah, like uh, um, healthcare and education are, are vital and really important in Ontario. And, and I think uh, voters uh, in, the, in the provincial election, when they uh, cast their ballot, they didn't think that this, these kind of cuts were going to be coming. Um, but it's also really apparent that, uh, that like, you know, that this government uh, doesn't care about the healthcare quality or the quality of education uh, because they're, at the time that they're cutting these vital public services, uh, they're also giving tax breaks. Uh, to big corporations. They're uh, investing money into uh, private businesses and they're, you know, using public money to fight a carbon tax. Uh, so instead of like actually increasing uh, revenue for the for the province by maybe increasing taxes upon big corporations uh, or finding different ways of, of revenue, uh, instead of like being smart with the money of Ontario, they're instead just uh, cutting where they where they think they can. Uh, and it's, it's really shameful because I think of the people who access healthcare and the people access education education are young people, um, people who are, are seniors who are retired. Like these are the people who access these really vital public services among everybody in Ontario. Uh, and it's actually been proven in, in other cases where uh, a publicly funded education system or a, a like publicly funded healthcare is actually cheaper. It's more cost effective over time. Uh, so it's just silly for me to think that uh, they think that they're going to save a lot of money by cutting these services. But in reality, uh, it's just creating a bigger mess for, for people to clean up later. Uh, I was a kid during my care, so I don't really remember uh, what exactly happened, but I, I do hear from my parents and I hear from uh, friends and, and, and family that there was a lot of things cut and we're still cleaning up from that mess. So I, I see that in the future, post-secondary education, it's going to take a lot to fix it uh, because it's already really broken and these OSAP cuts and other cuts to public funding for education, it's just making the system a lot, a lot worse. Well, I was around for the Harris days, and I do remember the impact that that was having. And I remember some of the pushback, and I remember the the, the, well, the teacher strikes, uh, uh, among others. And we're not sure if that's even going to happen this time around. As uh, everybody goes back to school today, uh, it's worth noting once again that, uh, that neither the elementary school or high school teacher are working with a contract right now. So uh, we'll see how that develops. But I'm I'm concerned about, for instance, having a, a, an educated. Uh, workforce for the future. I mean, he wants to talk about bringing jobs to Ontario uh, and bringing new companies to Ontario. Well, the first thing they're going to look for is, do you have the kind of people we want for our company? And if the education system starts to fall apart, if people with unlimited potential start dropping out of school because they can't afford to do that anymore, that's not going to put us in a very enviable position. No, and I'm glad you brought that up because um, it, people often think that, you know, college or university is like a really cool, fun bonus for education. Um, and it is. It's, it's a fun to like learn and study what you're passionate about, but it's also uh, really vital to the economy and it's really vital to the workforce, especially uh, to Ontario. Um, in Ontario, uh, on average, 80% of people living in Ontario have a post-secondary degree of some sort. Uh, so that means that a lot of people have... Uh, gone to college or university to be uh, to, to gain different skills when it comes to the economy. And uh, if less people are able to access education, there is a decline in enrollment and uh, at right now because of different age groups, but also because of these OSAP cuts. Uh, so in the next five or ten years, we're going to see less students and less people uh, with those uh, post-secondary degrees that are, are vital to our economy uh, because we, we need like a skilled labor force and, and all labor is like skilled and very important in Ontario uh, but there are definitely companies who are particularly seeking out Ontario because of our really good uh, like education system uh, but we're just going to see that quality drop and we're going to see less people with the skills that are needed to fulfill those needs and uh, going back to the, the talk of, of you know the tax on corporations these corporations benefit 
benefit highly from uh, having an educated workforce that's right here in this province and and also particularly in the big cities in Ontario. Uh, So like let's have them contribute a bit of money to our education system but not through private donations but actually through public tax dollars uh, so we can keep education public and open to all people. Well we saw that happen. You you were referencing some of the impacts of the the Harris cuts back in the mid-1990s and and corporate uh, involvement actually was uh, was an offshoot, I think an unintended offshoot, uh, because of the cuts to the education and cuts to boards of education and cuts to post-secondary education. All of a sudden, and I'm, I, I can certainly remember this, Kayla, uh, those institutions, those schools and those post-secondary institutions would start taking corporate sponsorships, of, you know, naming the restaurant after them or the cafeteria or, or this, that, or the other thing, just to, anything to try to raise funds. Uh, because of the shortfalls from the government right now. And that's that's making uh, public education a lot less public. And sometimes uh, the end result of that, of course, is, is going to be less access for some students. And that's, that's I think, a grave concern that we have to be concerned about here right now is are we making it more difficult for students to continue their education? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I, like, I'm really glad that you brought up this uh, the part, part, conversation about uh, corporatization of education uh, because sometimes people think like, oh, it's great, you know, that this company wants to invest in our education, um, but oftentimes there's another there's another motive behind it. I think of the investments in fossil fuel industry, uh, and right now we're in a climate crisis. Yet um, there's some uh, institutions who are hesitant to divest from fossil fuels, um, and, and that, that because of that corporate sponsorship. Um, and when we talk about uh, students in education, we're not just talking about uh, college students or undergraduate students, but we're also talking about students who are in graduate studies, um, who often do really cool work when it comes to the environmental science or uh, just generally like any any topic that's really important. And it's it with corporation corporate don- donors and and those sponsorships, um, it kind of taints the academic freedom of those students. Uh, so I, I think of like you know a big company um, that is really bad for the environment. If they donate money to a school, um, they're wanting to, to see different results from those students and from the faculty at that institution. Uh, so it's really important to not have corporate uh, donations to, to school because that creates a public system of uh, and and uh, you know putting to the priorities of corporations first over the public good. Exactly, uh, and, 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 there, and there is we the problem. To, we yeah. got we got to cut yeah. it off. We're just about out of time okay. this time. Uh, <laughs> let's let's uh, promise to stay in touch, okay? Because this is uh, yeah, this is this good. is going to continue. It's not going away. Thanks yeah. again, Kayla. Cool. Thank you so much, Kayla Weiler, Ontario representative for the Canadian Federation of Students. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.